Good morning. Would you stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures from Luke 19, 28 to 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of what is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, hi, I'm Josh. If you don't know me, I'd like to know you. I say this just about every time I get up here, um, but if you don't know me, I would like to know you. And I just want you to know, I mean that every time I say that. Um, so if I don't know you, uh, please come up and talk to me afterwards. Let's make a plan to get a cup of coffee or I'm not opposed to having an alcoholic beverage or something, you know, we're not a teetotaling congregation necessarily, but I'd love to get together with you, hear your story, hear about how you got here. Um, I'm going to try and do something that my wife will tell you I'm not very good at, called multitasking, so I'm going to try and like, oh, I'm going to try and move some things around while I talk, because these things are really distracting for me, I don't know if they are for you. But uh, anyways, yeah, so if I don't know you... Let's get that cup of joe. Now that we got that part out of the way, um, I just wanted to say again that we are taking a break from Mark, taking a break from Mark for the Easter season. And I know all of you were wondering what we were going to do this year. Like, how, what are they going to do now? Easter's coming up. I bet they're going to talk about Palm Sunday and Easter, you know. We do this every single year. And I just want to say up front, like, just name this. We do have this sense of kind of like dullness around it because you, there's this predictability. You know what's going to happen. And that's always a challenge for a preacher, of course. Um, how, do you, how do you keep it fresh, um, etc. But it's also a challenge for you guys, for all of us out there listening. Because one of the things that we end up doing is we take that sort of like, yeah, we all know how this goes. And we then import that into the story that we're reading. And it's important to remember that the people in the story, they didn't know how this was going to end. They didn't know where it was going. This was their first and only rodeo on this. You know, we hop on the bull every year, but they didn't know how it was going to go. 
So uh, if you're here and you're hearing me and you, uh, and you don't know Jesus, you don't know Christianity, you don't know the story, you're actually kind of, yeah, you kind of have an advantage because you're in a position where you're ready to hear this for the first time. And for lots of us, uh, we don't have that. So anyways, I just wanted to point out, hey, let's, let's, uh, not, let's be careful not to extrapolate our own sort of like... Um, we're used to this attitude back into the text. So in order to get there, uh, in, in order to do that, I kind of wanted to sort of repaint the picture, of, set the scene before we get to the text, right? So Jesus uh, is awesome, is he not? Jesus is awesome. Uh, actually, before I get, go any further, I think I need to pray. I'm going to stop right here and just pray. Lord, you are awesome. You are awesome. That song we just sang about your majesty is so true. I pray, Lord, that this moment you would use my uh, frail and weak words and somehow you would turn them into into arrows that will pierce our hearts so that we could love you more so that you could have more of us. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, Jesus truly is awesome. And as he lived on this earth um, he goes about his ministry. He spends several years doing miracles. And most of us, when we, uh, we hear that, and we're like, yeah, that's Jesus. That's what he does. We're used to it. We don't know what it would have been like to be there. You know, I, I, grew, up, I grew up down in southern Oregon in the 80s and 90s, and I know that dates me, right? That dates me. I get that. But back then... You didn't have the same problem of, um, of like homelessness, houselessness, living on the street, that sort of thing. Even Portland, you know, 10 years ago, it wasn't like it is now. But down there, there were not that many people who lived on the street. And there was one guy that everybody knew. His name was Dan, and the, there were derogatory terms for him and stuff, but, but his name was Dan. And you could see him coming from a mile away because he, he didn't walk right. And you knew when he was coming, there was going to be something super awkward that happened. And the story behind Dan, at least the one I heard, was that either he dropped acid or somebody dropped it on him and it fried his brain. So he could not have a coherent conversation or coherent thought. You knew when he was coming, there was not going to be a natural interaction with him. It was going to be something wild. And he would always have like the latest blanket or jacket or like a, 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 a Yahtzee game toy that some kind soul gave to him. And... Um, I just think of him when I, when I think of Jesus. Like, what if Dan, one day you saw him and he's just walking, you know? He's got a suit on. He comes up and he's like, pardon me, do you have any gray poupon? You know, he even got, he's even got an accent that makes him sound sophisticated, right? You would go, what happened? What happened to you, Dan? You'd, you'd ask people, hey, what happened to him? And if somebody said, oh, yeah, there's this guy. He goes from town to town and he just walked up to Dan and said, be healed. And then he's just like, whoop, hey, thanks. You know, he goes from like 
inability to have a coherent conversation or thought to like completely socially normal, gets it all, walks upright, is fine upstanding citizen, you would go, this is crazy. Who is that guy? Who's the guy that just went and talked to him and made this happen? Did he get therapy? No. Somebody just spoke a word and he was transformed. Now, this had happened over and over again for the disciples, right? They had seen this kind of thing. But it didn't, it didn't dull them because it wasn't like the same thing over and over again, right? They're like, okay, he, uh, he cast demons out of the guy. And then, whoa, now he heals the guy's leg so that he can walk. And now, now this person can see. Okay, now we're starting to get some predictability. But then, like, he turns one lunch into something that feeds 10,000 people. And then, and then he's like, he speaks to a storm. And the weather changes. At some point, you're, you're going to start going, what's he going to do next? What can this guy do next? What can he not do? In fact, he can speak to creation. He can speak to the elements and they just do whatever he says. He can say, hey, water molecules transform so that you become wine. You know, that's God-level stuff. That's, God, that's like ownership stuff. You speak to it, and it does, it does what you say. So this is, this is the situation they're in. The last thing that had happened was he raised a guy from the dead. He raised a guy from the dead, Lazarus. And so people are talking about him. He's at the height of his popularity. Everybody's running around saying, oh, no, you can go talk to this guy, Lazarus. Dude, it was crazy. Let me tell you. Let me tell you again. You know, um, there's a lot of hype and hoopla going on around Jesus at this time. Now, what I just mentioned about Lazarus comes from John's account. And all of the Gospels, all, every single one of them, includes this story of triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. It's in every single one of them. It's interesting how the different authors set it up, though. So John ends with Lazarus and all this uh, hullabaloo around Lazarus that makes people excited about Jesus. Luke takes a different tack. He actually inserts a, a parable. And, you know, I, I say inserts. It doesn't necessarily mean j- that Jesus didn't say this beforehand and, and John decided not to put it in there. But uh, he has this parable right before it. It's called the parable of the ten minas or the ten um, talents, you might say. And uh, those are just two names for, for the coinage of that time. And the story is essentially this. The parable is that um, there is a master who owns a lot of property and he's got some uh, employees, some stewards. And he says, hey, I'm going to go on a vacation. And I'm giving you a, little, a small amount of my property, a small amount of my money that you are to steward. That is, invest this so that when I get back, something will have happened with this. You know, I will have gained something from it. And the first two, they do exactly what he says. They go invest it, and then, they, and, and then when he comes back, they say, look, you got more. And they get rewarded. Then the last guy doesn't do that. He takes it, he buries it, and when he comes back, he's like, here, now you, get, now you have what's yours. No losses. You know, I took what was yours, and I kept it safe, and then I give it back to you. It's interesting how, how Jesus has the, the, the master respond to this last guy. He says this, But for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and have them slaughtered before me. Now, of course, you know, it's a parable. It's not like Jesus is saying, hey, come slaughter somebody in front of me. But it's interesting that the, that the, um, the pronoun changes. There was only one guy who buried, the, who, who buried the money. And then he says, like, these people who don't want me to reign over him. See, I'm pointing all this out because what Luke is doing is he's setting up the triumphal entry with this parable about people who reject 
someone's rulership over them. That's what you're supposed to have in mind when you come to the, the triumphal entry here, when we come to this text. So, uh, that's the idea. Are you going to accept or reject his rule? That's essentially what this is about. Jesus is being presented as the king of Israel, and people have the ability to either accept or reject him. What are you going to do? That's, that's what's in this story. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> let's get into the text. Verse 28. And when he had said these things, that is Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, uh, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on, uh, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to him, or said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it back to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Okay, so what's going on here? Jesus essentially says, Go steal a donkey. Right? He doesn't really say, go steal a donkey. That's how it feels in our world. Like, if I, if I was to walk out here and there's somebody hopping on my motorcycle, and I was like, hey, what are you doing? And they said, the Lord has need of it. I would say, Josh has need of it. I don't know who this Lord is that you're talking about. But in their world, it was very different. You know, even though um, they believed in private property, they were very communal, and they were um, very impoverished. So when somebody had something in need, it was common to borrow something like if you need a specific tool because you're doing a specific job, you're not necessarily going to go buy that tool. You borrow it from someone who has it. That's kind of what a donkey was. It was a pretty expensive tool, but was very useful. You know, you could use the donkey to plow your field so that you can uh, have a harvest so you can eat or have something to sell. You use the donkey to pack in your goods to sell them. If you're going to travel, you can put your family on it, or you can ride it. So it was very useful, but, but fairly expensive. Um, not super cheap. So, go get this donkey, and, uh, and Jesus says, hey, if, uh, if anybody like, asks you about it, just say the Lord needs it, and they'll let you go. And that's exactly what happens. What he says is going to happen, happens. So, there are two ways maybe to look at this. One is like, it, you know, maybe Jesus made this arrangement ahead of time. Maybe he went over to the village, and he was like, I won't buy all your donkey, but tomorrow. So I'm going to send some guys here, and they're going to take it. And the secret password is the Lord has need of it. So if they say the Lord has need of it, then I'm going to have it. You know, so he could have he could have made that arrangement, or it could also be that he's just the sovereign God. He knows what's going to happen. I'll just leave it right there. We're going to get back into the sovereignty in a minute. So go steal donkey, borrow donkey. Go borrow donkey. Why a donkey? Why a colt? That's, that's a, a good question we should be asking. Why is it specific? Is Jesus like, hey guys, I'm going to go into Jerusalem. You know what will turn some heads? A donkey. You know? It's not like a donkey was like a stretched Hummer limo or like a, like a hog. Hey guys, you know, <laughs> um, or something like that. That's not what this is about. One of the things that Jesus is doing is he is remembering the scriptures. He remembers the scriptures. And back in Zechariah, there was a prophecy God had spoken through Zechariah. And I'm just going to go ahead and read it so you, so you know where this is going. In Zechariah 9, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. 
um, but we're just going to be in and out pretty quick. Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'm going to go one more verse so that you see that there's actually more going on than just this, prophet, just this thing about the donkey. Verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We'll stop right there. Um, man, hallelujah. But that's, that's the way it's going to be. So what Jesus is doing... The reason why he's grabbing this donkey is he's saying, that thing that was said there is about me. That's what he's doing. He's saying, uh, God called it. God called it. Uh, Jesus is the king who is coming in on the donkey. Not, not only that, <clears throat> not only that, there's the nature of his rule. It will be one of peace. It's going to be uh, ruling by peace. The donkey is not merely a, uh, a, a, an answer to prophecy. It's actually culturally, when a king enters in on a donkey, it's not the same as when they come in on a horse. When a king comes in on a horse, they mean to make battle. They're coming into a territory that does not recognize their rulership, and they're coming in, they're going to regulate. It's going to say, regulators, mount up. Uh, I guess that works, huh? Yeah, mount up on your horse. So uh, he's going to come in and regulate. But when he comes in on a donkey, it's a territory that's already recognizing his rule. He's coming in to share his riches, to share his goods, or in some sense to, to, um, to rectify any wrongs. If there's any complaints, people say, hey, th these people outside our territory are invading. He's like, okay, I'm going to hear you, and we're going to go take care of it. He's coming in to help the people who already recognize his rule. By the way, um, Jesus is going to come again. The Bible tells us he's going to come again, and it's going to be on a horse. So uh, if, if you don't know Jesus, now's the time to come to him. He's, he's come in peace, and he wants to make peace with you. But if you will not be on his side when he comes back, there will not be peace left for you. So come to him today. That's my charge to you. Now, uh, with that light comment, <laughs> we'll move forward into the rest of the text. Okay, I'm just going to point out before we go there, there's three things that are going to happen. The disciples are going to respond to Jesus, the Pharisees are going to respond to Jesus, and then Jesus is going to respond to them. So that's where we're going. So, the disciples. Verse uh, 38. Is that what it is? No, 7. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Yeah, it is sad. <laughs> glory in the highest. So, just so you know, what Luke is doing is he's, he's, um, he's recording only one line from a song that they are singing. 
That song is Psalm 118, and it's something they would have known by heart, they would have grown up with it, something they would have known most of their life. And this is a song that, is, that identifies a particular longing in their heart. We're going to go there. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 118. We're going to go there. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I want you to see what's going on here. This song is like, this song is like you know, when I was in junior high, uh, you know, uh, back when the radio was a thing, remember? Uh, I was in junior high, and there was this song by Aerosmith. Don't want to close my eyes. Don't want to fall asleep. You know, you, there's these songs that sort of like touch this deep longing for this dream. You know, maybe Steve Tyler, probably somebody else wrote it, but like maybe Steve Tyler wrote that and he had somebody in mind. But you, it, it taps into this deep longing that you have for, you know, in your junior high crush or whatever of, of what it would be like to be with this special person or whatever. So this is a song that's tapping into a deep longing that they have. I'm going to go back and read a couple of portions of it. Now, it, it does repeat and has a lot of different things in it, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. And you might be saying hallelujah, or you might be saying, hey, we should go back there another time. Um, but for now, we're going to read verses. Uh, hang on, I'm getting lost here. There it is. Verse 5, starting in verse 5, says this. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Then skip down to verse 25, says this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. In the Hebrew, that's Hoshia Na, which in other translations, or uh, other gospel writers have them saying Hosanna. So it's, it's, it's the same song. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So there's the line that Luke has, has recorded for you right there. Blessed is he who comes in the name of, of the Lord. But they have in mind the whole song. It's not like they sang over and over again that one line like this was a, I don't know, like a Hillsong song or something. Um, they, were, they have in mind the entire song, okay? And what was that song about? It certainly wasn't Aerosmith and the star-crossed lovers who are alone in the universe gazing into each other's eyes or whatever. It's, we're glorifying God because he has defeated our enemies that surrounded us on every side. So what do they have in mind? When Jesus is coming, they're like, yay, a new political order. That's what they have in mind. So just a little bit of history for a moment. For almost a thousand years, the Jews had been run over time and time again. They had been ruled by and occupied by other nations, whether it was Assyria or Babylon or the Medes and the Persians or the Greeks and now the Romans. They had been under occupation. And they were saying, yeah, Messiah, come, reshuffle the deck, because right now we're at the bottom, and when you reshuffle the deck, we'll end up at the top. Somebody else will be at the bottom. That's what they have in mind. That's their longing. That's what they're wanting Jesus to do. Now, the thing is, 
Um, is that what Jesus is about? Is that what Jesus is going to do? Uh, not exactly. So, note this. Uh, they don't understand what Jesus is about. They might know that he's the Messiah, but they don't know what he's about. And here's, the, here's one thing to note. For Luke, he, he says this is the multitude of Jesus' disciples. This isn't just the, the maddening crowd. This isn't the mob. This isn't the people who are distant and just hearing whispers and showing up. Now, in Matthew and Mark, he talks about the crowds. But Luke specifically wants to point out that these are his disciples, people who are close to him, people that Jesus knows. Now, it might be comforting to know that Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood by the people who are closest to him. So if you feel misunderstood by people who are close to you, you are in good company. It will also be important to note that there's a lot of enthusiasm happening here. There's a lot of enthusiasm happening. People are excited. They're happy. They're initially saying, yes, we want you to be Lord over us. But between the lines, because, you know, I, I got to preach today on Palm Sunday, and then Cameron's going to do uh, the resurrection. <laughs> there's a lot that happens in between here. So I have to mention, there's a lot of enthusiasm now, but most of these people who are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are going to be saying, crucify in a few days. They're fickle. Their hearts are fickle. Even among the disciples, they may not be saying, shouting for his head on Friday, but they will have abandoned him. They will have denied him. And Jesus still says, I'm going to let you be close to me. You're still my disciples. It's amazing how Jesus is, right? Their enthusiasm is going to be short-lived, and by the way, one of the reasons why this is is because our hearts are fickle too. This is just human nature. Sin lives in your hearts and your desires and what attracts you and what you get excited about. It lives in there. It's what drives us. You know, how, how long, here's a question for you, how long can you give sustained attention and energy and heart and life to one thing before there's something else that your heart's like, ooh, ooh, what about, what about this thing over here? Oh, 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 what about that? Our hearts are flighty. In fact, the Bible says in Jeremiah that the human heart is deceptive above all things and is incomprehensible, right? The, the word in Hebrew for that actually means to trip somebody up from behind. So our hearts trip us up. Our hearts trip over ourselves. It's, it's incomprehensible. We can't figure it out. Our hearts are an enigma because, I mean, look at the way that we, just even the way that we eat. Nobody just eats only purely nourishing food. We want other things that are bad for us, and we want relationships that are bad for us, and we want media that's bad. Like, we want good things and bad things. Hearts are mixed. We trip over ourselves. They trip us up. So note, Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this about them. And yet he still says, you're, you're my disciples. If you're, if you're a disciple of Jesus... It's not like they suddenly became saints because they were around Jesus. They were just like everyone else. So, there's the disciples. Next section, the Pharisees. How do the Pharisees respond? This is in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, here's the interesting thing. The, the Pharisees actually agreed 
with the disciples as to what Messiah would be. He's going to be a conqueror. But the Pharisees said, Jesus isn't that guy. They knew he wasn't going to be a political leader. They knew that he wasn't going to be a warrior. They knew he wasn't going to call people to arms. So they were like, yeah, he's going to be a political ruler. And that's why we know it's not Jesus. So the Pharisees take the position of that last person in the parable. They reject his rulership over him outright. And not only that, not only that, but they actually give him, give him a rebuke. Teacher, shut your disciples up. Shut them up. See, what the Pharisees are operating as is they're, they're a kind of gatekeeper. And every society has gatekeepers, right? Every society has gatekeepers. And uh, it can be over, you know, over the dominant religion. So it could be Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or anything like that. But it can also be communism. It can be secular humanism. There are people who are like, we know what this is in its purity, and we can also identify its distortions. So when they look at Jesus, they say, this is a distorted version of Judaism, and he's leading the people astray. So in that sense, in the sense of being a gatekeeper, they're not necessarily doing something wrong. They're trying to be faithful. However, they missed Jesus. Even though they see him as, you know, inflaming this sort of folk religion. By the way, there's all kinds of folk religions that pass for Christianity nowadays. I won't get into it now, but um, be careful. Because there's a lot of things that say, that, and a lot of movements within Christianity that say this is what it's all about. But really, like, that is very much an American movement that's now trying to hijack Christianity. So, anyways, uh, these Pharisees see the disciples rejoicing, praising Jesus, and what they do not see is the same thing that's going on in all his miracles. Creation responding to its creator appropriately. Rather, what they see is the blasphemy of the ignorant and the credulous. They see Jesus as leading people astray. That's what they're doing. Their big problem, their big problem, was that they looked at Jesus and they said, He casts out demons. He heals the lame. He heals the blind. He he calms storms. He changes water into wine. He raises people from the dead. But he's not the Messiah. (laughs) I don't know what else you need, honestly, if you have all that, but um, I probably would have been one of them, honestly. (laughs) Um, Anyhow, so, that's the Pharisees. Moving along to Jesus. How does Jesus respond to this? Verse 40. He answers, that as he answers the Pharisees, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You know what he's saying here? He's saying you're wrong. What he's saying essentially is, My rule is inevitable. You can't stop this. Pharisees couldn't stop it. The disciples couldn't stop it. You can't stop it. I can't stop it. There's only one thing. There's two options. You either come under his rule. You're either praising along with the rest of creation or you're standing in opposition. Those are the only options that are open to you. And guess what? If you're not going to join in the praise, that praise is going to go on anyway without you. The ship is coming and going. Once again, that parable. Are you on board with his rulership or are you not? So, by the way, did you know that in Jesus and speaking, uh, you know, speaking to matter and it transforming? Do you know he still rules over matter? Do you know that? 
The universe is run by like a five foot six Jewish guy from the first century. You might find that hard to believe, and that's, and that's very understandable. You know, uh, I found an interesting fact that was really hard to believe today, too. It's, it's 11 o'clock, which means that uh, since I've been awake today, I have traveled 6,000 miles, and I live like 20 feet away. Now, you might say, how did you do that? That's a miracle. Well, the earth is spinning about 1,000 miles an hour, so I, you, we all have made a giant trip today. That's hard to believe. It feels like... We're just standing still. But it's still true. It's true that you have traveled. Oh, well, actually further, because the earth itself is spinning through the universe too. But we've traveled a long way, and it doesn't feel like it. Nevertheless, it's true. Sometimes that's how the truths of Christianity can feel. Uh, you know, uh, it takes... Uh, I've heard, I've read this. I'm now speaking not as an expert, but as a student. Uh, Cosmologists and astronomers tell us that there are thousands of, like, uh, constants in the universe that necessarily have to fit just perfectly for life to exist, right? And there are so many of these things, and they have to be so finely, so finely tuned that if it was off by a, a millionth of a tick, just one of those thousands was off by, like, one millionth of a tick, life just couldn't happen. It couldn't be possible. And that's why some of the most brilliant minds that have ever existed say, I don't know what it is, I don't know what this God is, but I can't not believe that there's a God. It's just too perfect. It's just too perfect. So if you struggle to believe that the universe is run by a five-foot-six Jewish guy, um, welcome to the club. That is hard to believe. But there are very unbelievable things that are, are in fact true. I would argue that the evidence for Jesus is very good, and if you would like to hear more about it, please come talk to me. I'll point you in the direction. There are, there's numerous resources out there that point for the evidence for Jesus being the one who rules the universe. Now, that's just a sidebar. We're going to get back, back to the text now. It wasn't in the reading, but I want to read verses 41 and 42 because I think they're very important. You know, your Bible splits, th splits things off into sections, but the text wasn't originally that way. Verse 41 says this, And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. How does Jesus respond? He knows the fickleness of their hearts. He knows that they're calling for his head in five days. And what does he do? He doesn't call anyone out. Doesn't call anybody out. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't judge them. He doesn't stand back, arms crossed, cynically. He's like, yeah, well, you're praising me now, but on Friday, you're going to be calling for my head. You know, he's not doing any of that. He weeps. He weeps over them. The people who are going to ask for his head, he's weeping over them. That is just so not me. I wish I was like that. But isn't that the guy who you want to rule over you? That kind of guy? Jesus weeps over them. He weeps over his enemies. He weeps over his disciples who will become traitors. He weeps over them. So, I'm just going to point out a few implications for this, and then we will be done. What does this mean for us? Well, I would say, first of all, we can trust Jesus. We can trust him. I mentioned over and over again the sovereignty of God. 
Sovereignty of God. Jesus said, you're going to go find the donkey. This is going to happen. It happened. Jesus knew about these prophecies. They happened. And by the way, that's just one thing. There are all kinds of these kinds of things in the Old Testament. Hundreds of years before Jesus showed up that all came true. God has a plan. God has a plan and he was fulfilling that plan in Jesus. I know that sometimes in life, sometimes in our life, it feels like nobody's in charge. Like nobody has a plan. Like the people with the levers of power are either so incompetent or foolish or malicious that they just can't get it right. We got problems, right? We got problems in our world. And that's not new, right? There were problems in Greece. There were problems in Rome. There were problems in the Byzantine Empire. There were problems. There's always problems. And if we had the levers of power, we wouldn't be making it any better. So we have this issue. It's, it, sometimes it can be hard to believe that there is actually a plan. There's a God, a benevolent God, who is going to take hold of history, who's going to intervene, who's going to bend the needle in the right direction and make sure it happens. But you know what? We can trust Him. And in here we see God doing that very thing. You know how sovereign, you know how sovereign God is? He's so sovereign that Jesus can say, yes, you're praising me now, you're calling for my head on Friday, and he will even use that to fulfill his plan to save everyone. Because if he didn't give, if they didn't call for his head, and he didn't give it to them, you and I could never be saved. No one could be saved. God even works the worst out for good. We can trust him. So if you are feeling lost right now, whether it's the loss of a job or a family member or a friend or a spouse or a house or a dream or whatever it is, if you're feeling a loss, God has a plan. He has a plan. And he wants to rope you into it. may not feel like it right now, but if you know Jesus, he wins in the end. Just like the rocks crying out, he's going to get his way. He's going to get the last word. It might feel like whatever's going on, this is going to be the last word on your life, but it isn't. Jesus is going to get the last word on your life. You can trust him. Second thing to point out, and I've said this over and over again, is that we can, we can expect fickle hearts from ourselves and others. Okay? Can, we just, can we just say that? We can expect this. It's how we are. Remember, uh, you might have heard this line. Be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. People say that all the time. It actually comes from Shakespeare. It comes from Hamlet. Some of you might have known that. Some of you don't. It comes from Hamlet. Here's the actual quote. It says, This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. Essentially, he's saying, hey, be true to yourself, and you'll be true to everyone else. And this is actually, in, in Hamlet, this is spoken by a guy named Polonius. I think that's how you say his name. To his son Laertes. And we hear that and we're like, yeah, be true to yourself. That's what you got to do. But then there's also this tension. We have fickle hearts, right? If you're going to be true to yourself, what's that going to mean for you in the long run? Well, in Shakespeare's play, that means Polonius is dead by the end of the story, and his son is dead by the end of the story, and his daughter is crazy by the end of the story. So uh, Shakespeare wasn't really like... When you quote this, you're not really honoring Shakespeare's intent. I think he, he meant this to like not be something that you follow. But if you're going to trust your heart, if you're going to follow your heart, you're in for a lot of hurt because your heart's going to be all over the place. You're going to change over time. 
Just like your body's going to change over time. Your heart will change. Don't, don't trust your heart. Don't follow your heart. Give your heart to Jesus and let him tell you. Let him give you a new heart. Let him tell you who you are. That you are his beloved child. That you are his creation. That he loves you. That's who you are. Because you know what? Half the time my heart doesn't tell me that. Sometimes your heart will tell you, you're not a big deal. Nobody cares. You're worthless. Don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus. Even though our hearts are fickle, his heart is steadfast, immovable. I mean, look at, look at Jesus, right? He doesn't do that like cynical, like, hey, you're, you know, you're, you're praising me now, and then you're going you're gonna to cry crucify on Friday. Like, he, he doesn't switch his from, from love to antagonism as soon as they, like, declare against him. He doesn't do that. It's the same all the way through. He's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing as they're pounding the nails into his hands. It's love all the way through. His heart is steadfast. So even though ours are fickle, his is not. Once again, you can trust him. You can trust him. So if you feel, if your heart tells you that you're powerless, that you have no agency, guess what? Give your heart to Jesus. He will give you a sense of agency. He will give you his power. If your heart tells you that you're guilty, that you're a fool, that you can never do enough, you can never be enough, if it tells you you're always going to go back to that same thing that you hate, but you keep going back to it over and over again, give him your heart. Jesus bled and died to take away everything that gets between you and him. His blood covers it all. So what if you can't do enough or be enough and you can't beat that that bad habit? That doesn't change God's heart towards you. Do you see him seeing you right now in your sin, in your heart that's hot and then cold and then good and then bad and then selfless and then selfish, generous and then all about yourself? He sees all that. He sees you right there and he loves you. He loves you in the middle of that. His heart is steadfast. For your good. And lastly, in light of all of this, this is the one thing I'm going to say, do this. Submit to his lordship. The king of peace has come. Submit to his lordship. You know, take whatever it is uh, in, your, in you that's wanting to resist him, get rid of it. You know, as I've been talking, maybe some of you here, maybe some people watching online or some people listening, you might feel this knot that's been growing in your gut. Or this knot that's been growing in your throat. You know what that is? That's God actually moving you. That's God moving you. The reason why you're hearing what I'm saying is because God has already brought you to this point. And now he's saying, that guy Josh up there, he might be an idiot, but what he's saying is true. It's true. And he's calling you to give and let go of whatever resistance is holding you back. And fling yourself at Jesus' feet and say, I'm tired of trying to do this my own way. I'm tired of trying to follow my own heart. It's putting me in corner after corner after corner. It's not working. Come to Jesus. Fling yourself on Jesus. And talk to somebody about it. Talk to somebody as soon as, as, soon as we're done. Talk to the person standing next to you. Come talk to me. You know, we're social creatures. And just as, you know, sin is like a contagion. Right? The mob was crying crucify, and the mob, the mob was crying Hosanna. You know, there's this, there's this social aspect to things that we do. But you know what else is a contagion? Faith is a contagion. So if we talk to each other about Jesus, 
if we share the gospel and how he's working with our lives to each other, that actually spreads. That will actually spread. So don't hold it in. Don't just keep it to yourself. Share that with other people. Come today. Come to the King of Peace and submit to his rulership. He has come in peace to bring you peace. Come to him today. Amen?